In the Reading Corner today, I'm joined by Eve McDonnell. Eve is an artist and children's writer. Her debut novel, Else Time, won the 2017 Wells Festival of Literature Prize and was subsequently published by Everything With Words. Else Time is a historical fantasy adventure with a foot in two different time periods. It's sprinkled with a light covering of magic. Steve Oak, one of the judges of the Wells Prize, described it as a unique and compelling story of friendship and courage. As you can see, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. But first, I'd like to welcome Eve to In the Reading Corner. Hello, Nikki. Thank you very much. I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. And you're joining us from Wexford in Ireland today. I am, yes. The, the sunny southeast of Ireland. I'm halfway up a hill. Um, in the middle of nowhere, but what more could a writer ask for, I guess? Fantastic. Now, I did say in the introduction that you were an artist and a children's writer. Um, of course, they uh, are both creative endeavours, but I wondered whether you could see any connection between those two um, ways in which you create things. Absolutely. Um, quite a few connections, actually. I, I started off going down the path of becoming an artist uh, when I was quite young. I won a third prize in the Texaco Art Competition, um, which is run over here every year. Um, I was only a whippet of a thing. I suppose I must have been 11 or 12, but it really put me on that path. And um, I focused on it quite strongly and went to the National College of Art and Design in Dublin to pursue a career in art. Um, that led to uh, a career in graphic design for many years and it, it, it took quite a while to realise that the act of actually looking at a blank canvas um, or a blank screen when it came to graphic design had a lot of similarities to basically looking at a blank page when it came to writing a book. Um, and when I did actually write my first book or began writing, um, I was gobsmacked at the similarities between the two in terms of how it first mainly how it made me feel and um, that sense of achievement when you've actually produced something in writing or be it in, in, in a set of oil paints. So there was definitely a link between the two. In terms of process, are there similarities as well? Obviously, there's an editing process with writing. But once you've put paint onto a canvas, do you go back and change it or does it have to? Well, uh, you know. <laughs> absolutely. I, I have a very, very odd process for both my writing and my, my, my painting. And I suppose, it, you know, it's, it's different strokes for different folks. And in my case, um, when it comes to painting, obviously there's a huge amount of preparation done. I have to know exactly what it's going to look like um, before I even start. Um, but when I actually do start, it is, it is um, very controlled, literally like doing a jigsaw puzzle. I will, I will start in one corner and literally work my way down. And I find it very difficult, as most artists do, to cover the whole canvas and then work with it. I actually try to get each little part as perfect as I can before I move on. Bit of a crazy way to do it. But when it comes to my writing, I have quite a similar approach whereby I tend to do it pretty much sort of scene by scene and I will keep going over a scene over and over until I've literally like ironing a shirt I will make sure that it's completely flat before I move on and it will niggle at me if I don't allow that to happen now the one slight difference is with a painting I know where I'm aiming I know where I'm going I know what I need it to look like in the end with my writing 
I have an idea. I tend to have uh, the rough structure of the story. Um, I know the beginning. I roughly know the end. Um, but I, I allow myself a little bit of freedom in the middle. It's absolutely fascinating to hear about those connections and the, dis and the differences that you've discovered as well. So we're going to be talking about this fantastic story, Else Time. Um, I don't know whether you agreed with my um, introduction of the kind of story it is, but I wondered if you could set the story up for our listeners without giving too much away. Sure. The story is basically, uh, yes, a wee bit of a magical story about a little boy called Needle, who is based um, in the 1800s. He's a mudlark. Um, so he scours the, the foreshore of the river um, to, to look for anything that he might be able to sell or for his mother um, uh, to sell at her market stall. So Needle is, he's a little bit different. He has a, and he, he's, he's also quite a shy little guy. So he spends a lot of time alone, or should I say alone with his bird, magpie and they spend time searching for treasures but when they do find treasures needle has a special gift and that is he can hold them in the palm of his hand and actually read their stories so when needle comes across very special find it actually sets him off on a wild adventure that brings him not only to somewhere quite special but to a different time altogether we're going to talk about that other time um, in a moment. But before we do that, can I just talk a little bit about this process of mudlarking? I just knew as I was reading it uh, that this must have been something that you've done yourself. It's an obsession. <laughs> My only regret is I don't have a fabulous river nearby. So I, I do a lot of beach combing in the absence of mudlarking, um, but they're indeed very similar things. And um, it, it really is a most wonderful thing to spend your time at. When you are walking along a river and, uh, you know, a lot of people tend to keep the head up, be it at the sea or a river, and you're looking at the beautiful waves or boats going by or whatever, my head is always down to the ground. And I'm fascinated by, you know, the, the tiniest little bits of history that are scattered around us all the time. Um, and I do recall um, a good while ago when my twins were very, very young, we were walking along a beach and I came across um, a tiny little chess piece that had come in off the sea and it was sticking out of the, of the sand. And I picked up that little piece. They were fascinated. They were tiny. What is it, mummy? And we, we started to make up a story. And their eyes were literally wide open as I told them how the fish managed to swallow this chess piece and so forth and had a long, long story to go with it. And literally, as I was tucking them into bed that night, we were still telling the story. They were adding in their little bits. So that, that moment really woke something up inside me. Um, where first off a massive love of looking at items um, that you can find along the shore and trying to discover not only the real history, you know, how old is it? What is it made of? What did it do? Um, but also, you know, making up our own little fictional stories about it. And I know, part, as, as I said, Needle's skill is to, is to do such a thing as tell a story by holding a treasure in his hand. And some part of me likes to believe that when you actually try that while you go mudlarking or beachcombing, for some some reason, one part of your it's your subconscious mind or somewhere will actually niggle at you as what the, the possible story might be. And I love that feeling that there is magic in there somewhere. And I'd like to think that maybe it's not just our imaginations at play. It's fabulous, isn't it? When you can hold something in your the palm of your hand and you've instantly got a connection 
with another time or place. I was once interviewing the um, writer, illustrator, Brian Selznick, who you might have heard of. He did this fabulous book called The Invention of Hugo Cabret. And I was interviewing him in an old house in London, surrounded by fantastic antiques and objects. And he, he talked about having an empathy for objects. I thought that was really yes. interesting because it seems to me that's what you've described. He's my brother. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> my house is filled with everything that I found. I haven't thrown out a thing. For example, right beside me in my writing room, um, I have a cabinet which is filled with hagstones, which are stones that have a hole, a naturally occurring hole in them. And of course, they feature in the book as well. There's a lot of folklore around hagstones. Um, and they, there's something magical about finding something so rare and being able to literally wish for something by looking through it. And I, I think it's a fantastic hobby to have. And it's also massively educational. The amount of information I have gathered on the few pieces that I have found it's blown my mind I will just say for listeners that Eve has written a fantastic writing story for us which you'll be able to access on the Just Imagine website which actually encourages them uh, to do this very thing and to make up stories from the objects that they find now you mentioned the hagstone there and that's going to lead us quite nicely into the other strand of this story because needle isn't the only character and actually the main action doesn't take place in needle's time does it the hagstone is a connection for us yes needle without giving away too much um, the Hagstone does play uh, a wee bit of a part in terms of Needle's time travel. So um, although the book isn't necessarily about time travel, it's just something that happens within it. Um, and Needle, from his 1864 world, suddenly finds himself in 1928. So obviously a massively different world. Um, if, you know, if you just simply go back and look at, for example, the amount of inventions that even came into play between those two time periods, um, he was faced with something extraordinary. And when he gets to 1928, he becomes face to face with a wonderful girl called Glory Bobbin. Um, now, Glory is a bolshy, impetuous, impatient girl. She's one-handed, but she doesn't let that get in her way as best as possible. Although sometimes she might blame it um, for some of the problems that she, she's faced with. So Needle and Glory, once they get together, their adventure starts. And actually, there's a connection in as much as Glory makes things from found objects, doesn't she? Yes. She makes beautiful works of art from things yes. that have, have been found. And Needle obviously finds things that are sold, as you said, in his mother's market stall and there's a lovely scene where needle is describing to glory how he can read the stories of objects i wondered if you'd read us a little bit of the book that just gives us an insight into absolutely that. yes and um, i'll jump to a, a little part that's halfway through not even halfway through the book and at this stage needle and glory um have become aware that there is a big flood coming um into the town and they obviously need to warn people um, however, they are faced with a lot of struggles in doing so, but they, they do actually go knocking on doors, thinking that that's all they need to do to save the world, um, but things don't quite go to plan. So 
The police have been called, they're on the run, and they've hidden under Islet Bridge, which is pretty much the home um, of Needles Trove, where he uh, produces all of his wonderful bits and pieces from his finds. So Needle has, has um, realised Glory is a little bit upset, not so much with him, um, but with the way people have been treating her, and he wants to cheer her up. So this little extract is where he decides to show her for the first time how he reads treasures. Listen, Needle whispered and put a finger to his lips. Glory froze with pebbles balanced on her wooden hand and listened hard. What? Needle reached between them and pointed to a tiny disc of grey pressed down into the mud. He licked his finger, rubbed the disc until it shone and gently pushed down on it. The silver was so weak it relented and offered a quiet white pop. Glory gasped. Listen, Needle repeated. Carefully, he pinched its sides with his long nails and pulled up and up ever so slowly. Schmuck! That's the noise Needle always heard when he pulled things from the soggy mud. It was a beautiful silver thimble, so fragile it could buckle from a feather's touch. Needle crawled over to the river's edge and washed it. He stood up and placed it in his palm. Glory's jaw dropped. He had spoken of how he could tell a treasure story. She watched in silence as Needle closed his eyes and stuck out his chest. This thimble's owner be only a whippet of a thing, but whoosh, this girl had clout, Needle began, waving his free hand over his head like a shooting star before placing it against the crook of his back. She and this thimble darned socks for a living, but with every stitch she'd be dreaming of bigger things. One day in church, she came to the rescue of a red-faced lady-in-waiting, sewing her torn sleeve up good and tight. And each perfect stitch was worth one step on the ladder until at 15, she became the youngest ever mistress of the robes to wait for it, he whispered, only the king's mother herself. Glory squealed for the girl's success, but quickly hushed as Needle paused, concentrating on the deepening story. The girl was quiet, like a mouse, but she'd big ears. She'd be sewing royal secrets into every hem and cuff in that castle. Drop a stitch or a secret and she'd be out in her ear, she was warned. But she did. She dropped a secret, one that spared the life of the king's son and hung his royal traitor dead. Needle opened his eyes and placed the thimble on Glory's smallest wooden finger. She said little else after she'd told the secret, afraid her own would escape. Turns out she tore that lady's in waiting sleeve herself. I'd like to be having a cup of tea with her, he smiled. Amazing, said Glory. It be older than you think. Happened 200 years ago at least. Again, again, do it again, cried Glory. She made efforts to get up. Needle grabbed her wooden hand. Wait. From her palm, still full of pebbles, he plucked an old crooked coin. Ah, this be hot. Ouchie, he pretended. Cold ones be from the past, so this one be from the future. He peeped through one eye and watched her as she stared at the rusty coin. It belonged to, I mean, will belong to, a kind redhead of a lady from Indington. She'll be so rich, she'll be throwing coins in the air as she walks, and this one here will land in the river. She'll be the richest woman in the world, and all because she'll be making jewellery in her shop where the Queen visits every single day. He thought maybe it was best to stop there. True story, he added when he heard her gasp. Do, 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 you, think, do you think it could be me? Anything be possible, so it is. My mam told me that, said Needle. He frowned. In his attempt to bring up her hopes, he felt his own plummet. Mam wouldn't lie, but I now be thinking getting home from the future is one thing that ain't possible. He looked at Glory, 
desperately wanting her to say his answer was so very, very wrong. Wonderful. And I love this idea that uh, when he's finding objects, those that are from the past are cold and the further back in the past, the colder they are to him. And one day he finds this hot piece that blisters his hand. And that's when we discover that this hot piece is from the future rather than the future and as you can imagine um to discover something that is from the future it's kind of (laughs) mind-blowing so the the poor fella his his mother actually informs him of that and so he that thought is literally bouncing around his head how can treasure be from the future but of course we need to read the book to find out the reason why (laughs) We we do indeed now you also read there that the story is set in Ivington Town, but of course this is an alternate London. Correct. 1928 yeah. is a very important year for London. January the Correct. 7th, the 8th, 1928. It's the London Flood. Correct. Now, how did that come to be part of this story? The inspiration behind Else Time started off with a number of characters bumping into my head. The first thing was obviously treasure hunting um, and my love for it um, and mudlarking so a 12 year old needle locket popped into my head and I felt I need to tell a story with this boy I knew immediately that he could do his trick of telling uh, a treasure story by holding it in his hand and I also knew that he was very good at taking his treasures treasures to him that might be you know a a cracked piece of glass um, or a little piece of twisted metal and he would make them into treasures to behold and for his mother to sell Um, So yes, I knew he was in my story, then popped in um, a crow um, who does play an important part in this story. And that was inspired by the fact that I love my my garden birds. And I discovered that my crows, two two, uh, hooded crows, one called Flotsam, one called Jetsam, were, were actually depositing little gifts on the bird feeders for me. And I thought, I'm imagining this. Um, this is crazy but when I read up on it I discovered that it actually does happen and I was getting these little shards of metal and shards of stone and ceramic um, that were all for a while um, triangular which plays a part in our story as well um, but I said definitely this gift-bearing bird has to appear in my book but then I imagined a jeweler's apprentice who would actually work with all these wonderful finds and produce something spectacular and of course I had to go with the 1920s because there are the the years of the wild flapper parties fantastic jewelry and, and necklaces and bangles and anything that sparkled and glory came into my head along with her hard-nosed taskmaster mrs quick who runs a jewelry emporium now where this uh, starts to kind of all link with the setting of a fictional version of london was I came across a very serendipitous find, which was I stumbled across a newspaper clipping uh, that listed uh, souls that were lost in the Great Flood of London in 1928. So this real life tragic event, um, I felt was the perfect place um, and timing for my story. It was based along a river. It was based in a a large, buzzing, fashionable uh, city or town. Um, But what really got me was on that list of names, uh, there were 14 listed in all, was a Mrs. Quick. Um, so obviously that shocked the life out of me because I'd already chosen that name for Glory's mistress. I'd in fact started to write the story at that point. Another bit of Googling later, and I was staring back at the warm eyes of the real Mrs. Quick in an old black and white photograph. 
and she looked strangely familiar um, and it felt like a message from the past and I felt this was a story I had to write. I think just to talk a little bit about that flood of 1928 and the, the kind of historical, the real flood, it was such an unfortunate sequence of events really wasn't it so many different things that happened at the same time to create this phenomenon it was really three things I suppose it was the end of 1927 and I think everybody might have been enjoying a beautiful white Christmas Um, but unfortunately there was a sudden thaw um, just before New Year's Day that caused the volume of water along the Thames to double. Um, But it wasn't just the doubling of the water that caused the embankment walls to to overflow. It happened at the very same time as a storm in the North Sea that coincided with a spring tide, which would obviously bring naturally high water levels. So if you can imagine, you know, the Thames is a a tidal river. So the, the, the tide was basically rushing in, a very high tide, higher than normal, of course, because of the storm meeting with this cascading water coming down from the other side and where they met was in in an area where the unfortunately man had made a mistake and that was they had over dredged the river to allow larger ships pass through and so where there's more water uh, more room more water will go not long after midnight there was a wall along near the stretch where the Tate Britain is today. But at that point, there was a wall that used to be part of an old prison and that old wall started to collapse. So there was a sudden deluge of water um, that went flowing down all of the side streets, etc., into an area where it was filled with 100-year-old flats. Um, it was a very poor area at the time. It trapped London's most vulnerable really before they knew their fate. Um, and unfortunately, to this day, there isn't a plaque nor anything to commemorate those 14 lives, Mrs. Quick being one of them. Very, very sad uh, story. Coming back to your Mrs. Quick for a moment, she seems to have um, a wonderful Dickensian type name. I mean, it's just perfect in a way for the story. And I was fascinated by your naming of London streets and places Uh, Because they do have that feel of old London. I don't think they're the actual names, but, you know, they have that feel. (laughs) This was one part of uh, writing a story I had a bit of fun with. Not many people have realised that there's actually a wee bit of a connection between the street name and indeed people's names, character names, um, in that they're all sewing terms, or at least most of them are sewing terms. Obviously, we have Needle, um, we have Glory Bobbin, a, a sewing term, we have Ribbon Lane. We have broidery uh, from Broidery Key from embroidery. We've Cross Grain Street. We've Nittle Lane. We've the River Notion. Notion, that word itself, is, is the sewing term and Islet Bridge um, and, and more. <laughs> They're the yeah. ones I can think off the top of my head. So as it turned out, um, maybe me having a bit of fun worked then in that instance. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I loved it. I did know uh, about Notion. I think from when my grandmother used to do sewing and, and making pattern making with me and in any case they have something that is beyond that which is more to do with the the sound of them yes actually one just before i move on there's actually one place name i'd like to mention um which is the name of the town itself which is indington town and the word indington itself actually comes from my mother who's no longer with us, bless her, but uh, she was a fashionista. She was brilliant. She was gorgeous. And 
everything uh, she would wear, she would say, um, I'd say, oh, is that new, mum? And she'd say, oh, it's the in thing now. All the rage, it's the in thing. So that's why I named the town in thing, the in thing town. So um, that's where that came from. But yes, there, there is another connection when it comes to the sounds of words. And that is something that Needle has called synesthesia. He has the ability to hear sounds in colour. So certain words have certain colour to him. For example, he might think that the word unique has a lovely shiny gold sound to it. Indeed, the word, he, the sounds that he hears when he pulls things from the mud, which is schmuck, he describes as a purple word. So every word has a sound to him and also it's how you say it um, will tint how he sees that colour. So although you might say a word which is quite a happy sound, if you say it, um, while you're cross, it will sound red to him. And this is uh, something that allows him uh, the ability to understand the nuances in, th in things that people are saying, because he does actually find it quite difficult to sometimes understand people otherwise. Both of your characters, Needle with his synesthesia and difficulties with other aspects of communication, and Glory, you've already mentioned with her wooden hand, has uh, some challenges with regard to the dexterity that's needed for her job. How important was it to you to have these children with particular needs, might be called special needs in uh, today's parlance? Well, I didn't really see it as, as a hugely important thing. I think it's just part of their character. Um, I mean, we all have areas, difficulties, for example, in different things. And I felt when, when I was getting to know the characters, I just felt that it really, really worked um, for need. Like I can picture him clear as day in my mind. And he's a child who perhaps has, has, has experienced a wee bit of bullying in the past. And as a result of that, his confidence is shot. And the bullying probably came because he has some differences um, to the people around him. And his poor mother does her best to try and you know, protect him from that. And rather than teaching him to maybe, you know, stand proud of who he is, she's protecting him perhaps a little bit too much by saying to him, you know, let's keep our special things to ourselves. Um, but Needle learns, I think, in the course of the book that, you know, he can, he can overcome um, the anxiety that some of his special things uh, bring to him. And likewise with Glory, she has never let, in one sense, a, having a wooden hand stand in her way. Um, however, she is a fierce, impatient girl and uh, is too quick to blame it when things go wrong. And I think Needle helps Glory in that regard to learn that, you know, it's, it's, it's not about um, the limitations in that regard. He has seen her plait her hair with one hand. You know, he has seen her produce the most in incredible jewels. Um, you know, with one hand, he's seen her do an awful lot. So he knows that it's, it's her, her patience um, that is actually her problem. Um, so yeah, they're, they're two strong kids who have a lot to overcome, but they, 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 they achieve it. Eve, you've given us some brilliant insights into your book, but actually there's so much more to be discovered. And it's right that we should leave it with so much more to be discovered because we really want people to read um, Elf's Time. I'd like to thank you so much for talking to us today in the Reading Corner. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much, Nikki. I've enjoyed it no end. Thank you very, very much. 
Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.